Well, I now turn to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning, which is in John chapter 6, that's the gospel according to John chapter 6, verses 34 through 40. So we attend now to the reading of God's holy word, as this is not merely the best remembrance of John, of the things that he heard, but that it is the infallible recording of these things by the work of the Holy Spirit, even as Jesus promised that he would bring to the minds of his disciples the things that Jesus taught and much besides. And so here we read now the very word of the living God, John chapter 6, verses 34 through 40. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in the sight of the Lord. One of the last several times we've observed the Lord's Supper, I have preached from John chapter 6 on Jesus' statements about his being food and bread. The food which endures to everlasting life, he called himself. The bread come down from heaven, the bread of God. Uh, These are facts. These are spiritual realities uh, to which the sacrament of the Lord's Supper points. And today we come to Jesus' declaration, I am the bread of life. After saying that, he fleshes it out for us in the following verses. Uh, Considering this passage, we will see, number one, Jesus is claiming to be the Lord God. He is Yahweh. He is the God who created the heavens and the earth. He is his people's everlasting sustenance. The third thing is that his people come to him by faith. Fourth, his people come to him by the decree of God the Father. Fifth, his people persevere by his power. Sixth, his people will be resurrected. And then seven, they will be resurrected to everlasting life not merely back to this life. After Jesus spoke of his being the bread come down from heaven and the bread of God, John tells us in verse 34, as we read, Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. They, the people who had witnessed the feeding of the 5,000 and had come looking for Jesus found him at Capernaum, have desired uh, 
the life that Jesus has just said this food, this bread, provides. But as we'll see, they lack the faith necessary to receive it. And we've noted before, they were looking more for simply a provision, a daily provision directly from God uh, for life in this world that they might not have to worry about that uh, basic labor to get their food, it seems. They want to be supplied as the Lord supplied the people in their wilderness journey with bread from heaven. And Jesus has told them, well, there's a better bread from heaven. I'm the real bread come down from heaven. And they're still not quite getting it here. And that's because, of course, as Jesus says in this passage, they lack faith. But they're asking for this life that Jesus says he gives without really understanding what kind of life he's talking about. But first Jesus replies to them when they say, give us this bread always. In verse 35 he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. So note our first point here before we move on to what it means about hungering and thirsting there. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The construction used in the Greek there is unusual especially in a Jewish context. He says, as it's recorded in Greek, and he would have probably said this in Aramaic, and this is in translation, he says, Ego eimi, I am. Well, the way he says that indicates that he went out of his way to say, I am. Uh, The significance of this may be lost on those of us who are English speakers. English is our native language, and we say, I am all the time. That's just the, the normal way that we would say things. You know, I am a husband. I am a pastor. I am hungry. Or just, I am, as in I exist. You know, think of the, the philosophical statement, I think, therefore I am. Right? I, because I think, I, I know that I must exist because I exist in order to think. Right? It's, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't think if I don't exist. But in Greek and in the Aramaic that Jesus was speaking, using both the pronoun and the verb uh, was considered rather superfluous. It was redundant. It was unnecessary. Only one pronoun goes with am. This, of course, is true for us in English as well. But only one pronoun goes with am. Only one way of conjugating the verb in the present tense, the verb to be, goes with I. You know, it's it's not proper to say you know I are, you know, or I is, or we am, right? They am, right? And so on. Uh, only I goes with am, and only am goes with I. So most people simply, in many languages, including Aramaic that Jesus was speaking, including the Greek that it's, this is the New Testament is recorded in, most people simply just dropped one or the other in their conversation. Instead of saying, I am a husband, it would would be considered sufficient for me simply to say, I a husband, or am a husband. That would be perfectly fine, and it wouldn't sound weird. In fact, uh, it was weird the other way around. In everyday conversation, it sounded weird to people if someone actually said both of those things together, I am. 
and especially in a Jewish context, this was the case, because I am was known to be the personal name of God. People avoided that construction when talking about themselves in a Jewish context because they didn't want to be sounding as if they were saying they were on some equal footing with God. But Jesus goes out of his way to say, Ego and me, I am. And by doing that, Jesus is declaring himself to be the Lord God. I am Yahweh. In John 8.58, he'll do this, and the people who hear him will realize what he's doing, and they will pick up stones to stone him because they believe he isn't God, and so he must be blaspheming. And the consequence, the sentence for blasphemy was stoning, or was death, and it was typical that people would stone to death those who blasphemed. So they picked up stones to stone him because they realized exactly the claim he was making. They just didn't believe it. Of course, we know that we can believe it. Jesus proved that he is exactly who he says he is, particularly by his resurrection when he said, I will lay down my life for my sheep and take it up again. He he predicted and accomplished his own resurrection. So he is who he says he is, including he is the Lord God. So that's the first thing that we note here when he says, I am the bread of life. He says that I am indicates he's claiming to be the Lord God. Number two, the statement, I am the bread of life, teaches that Jesus is his people's everlasting sustenance. In the rest of verse 35, he says, He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus gives everlasting sustenance, never hungering, never thirsting. He sustains the life of everyone who comes to him and believes in him. Which brings us to our next point, number three, Jesus' people come to him by faith. Notice the way in which never hungering and never thirsting there in verse 35 are parallel ideas, and the verbs which parallel each other with those ideas are come and believe. To come to Christ is to believe and to have faith, that is, in Him. To believe, to have faith in Christ, is to come to Him. The two things are two sides of the same coin. Faith alone is the instrument whereby one can lay hold of Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And so Christ presents the contrast. Why is it that so many of these people who have come after him seeking another miracle like the feeding of the 5,000, why do they not see Jesus for who he truly is? They've seen what he can do. They've heard him say over and over again, you're not looking for the right kind of food. I'm the food you should be looking for. Why do they lack that everlasting sustenance? Well, because they lack saving faith. Verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. They look at Jesus, and they see a mere man. That's why similarly, in a few chapters here in John, people will hear what Jesus is saying when he says, I am, and they will 
pick up stones to stone him because they think he can't be anything more than a mere man. They don't see with the eyes of faith and thereby recognize the fact to which these miracles point. That Jesus is telling the truth about God even when he claims to be God. That God is confirming the message of the messenger by the miracles and in this case that messenger is even saying and I am the God who does these miracles. Jesus' people have open eyes They can see these things, for they trust in him. They have saving faith. Christ's people come to him by faith. Number four, Jesus' people come to him by decree of the Father. The grammar of Ephesians 2.8 shows that even the faith whereby we lay hold of Christ is the gift of God. And here, at the beginning of verse 37, Jesus extols God's grace and his sovereign choice of his people, saying, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Remember that coming and having faith are two sides of the same coin, as we saw in verse 35. And here he says, who is it that has that faith? Who is it that comes to him? All that the Father give me. And in verse 38 and 39, He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. The Father has chosen a people and given them to Jesus. They are the ones that he saves. This is what we call the doctrine of limited atonement or particular atonement, that Jesus dies for his people and everyone he died for is saved. Ephesians 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption, as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And here in John 6, down in verse 44, we'll get to this, Lord willing, in a future date, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus' people come to him by decree of the Father. Number five, Jesus' people persevere by his power. The second part of verse 37. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And then the first part of verse 39. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, I should, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. This is the doctrine that we call perseverance of the saints. Right? It upholds the related doctrine of eternal security, the notion that that if you are truly found by Christ, you cannot be lost. He is not an inept shepherd who loses the sheep he has found. Those who are truly saved by Christ will persevere in faith and be kept by him securely in his kingdom. If someone truly falls away, he was never really saved. He never really had saving faith in 1 John 2.19, this is the difficult thing from our perspective, by the way, because we can't truly see what's in someone's heart. So people who can appear to have faith may then fall away from it. 
And in 1 John 2.19, John speaks of such people saying, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So he's talking about people who used to seem to be Christians, but now they've gone out, they're proclaiming a different message. And so he's saying, well, they obviously weren't really of us. Conversely, Jesus says in John 10, verses 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. If you are in Christ's hand, no one, not even yourself, can snatch you out of Christ's hand. Jesus' people persevere by his power. If it were, if it were depended on our power, if my staying in Christ depended on my strength, well, I would fail and I would fall away from Christ. But it doesn't. It depends on his strength, and he will not fail. Jesus' people persevere by his power. Number six, Jesus' people will be resurrected. The last part of verse 39, but should raise it up at the last day. The things that Jesus won't lose, he's going to raise up at the last day. Namely, the people that God has given him. And Jesus will raise up all that the Father has entrusted to him. That will not be a resurrection to a mortal life, prone to disease, disaster, and death. Think of the resurrections we see in Scripture. Lazarus being the most prominent example. We know, as I mentioned recently, uh, we know, or have a good idea, at least there's a grave marker, where Lazarus' body is now. He was raised from the dead by Jesus after four days, and it was not a resurrection to the glorified life that Jesus is the first fruits of those born from the dead, uh, but it was a resurrection to the life that we know now. And so what happened? He was still under the power of death and mortality. He grew older and died. And we have a pretty good idea of where his grave is. There's a marker there that says... That Lazarus is buried there on the island of Cyprus where he served as a pastor. But the resurrection that Jesus promises at the last day for his people is not resurrection back to this ordinary life that we know, nor is it a resurrection to everlasting judgment, but rather, number seven, Jesus will raise up his people to everlasting life. Verse 40 And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son, and remember Jesus said, I came to accomplish that will, and he has accomplished it. So this is the will of God who sent Jesus, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So we just ask, has Jesus accomplished his Father's will or not? Yes, he has. So, he will indeed cause his people to persevere, and he will raise them up at the last day. All these things are directly related to the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. He is the bread of life, because he is the Lord God, the author of life, who himself has come to be one of us and to give his life as a ransom for many As the bread of life, Jesus is his people's everlasting sustenance. It's through him that we have that life and that we maintain that life. 
His people come to Him and feed on Him by faith and by the eternal decree of the Father. As He nourishes them to everlasting life, they will persevere in faith and be raised up at the last day and live forever with Him. Trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone who is God Himself with us. Feed on Him and think on these things particularly as you partake of the sacrament which points to Jesus himself being the bread of life. Let's pray. Lord our God, build up our faith in your word incarnate, in Jesus Christ, that feeding on him by faith we may be nourished unto everlasting life and kept by him eternally. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.